Thank you, Mr. League, and greetings to all of our brethren here and around the world. Welcome to all our guests. It's a beautiful Sabbath day here in Charlotte, North Carolina. Atheists, agnostics, and higher critics have always attacked God and the Bible. But in the past few years, they've increased in their numbers and their intensity of criticism. Their foundational philosophy is based on evolution. Even the public school children are often immersed in anti-God, evolution-based education, and your children perhaps have had to face those challenges. Young people entering universities as freshmen are often overwhelmed by their biology classes, by an attitude of intellectual superiority, and an atmosphere of political correctness. Even as far back as 1959, an article from the Harvard Crimson, which is their daily college newspaper, discussed the problem of changing beliefs among students at Harvard University during their college career. Quote, a Harvard education is more destructive to Protestantism than to Catholicism or Judaism, while only 21% of the Catholics and 25% of the Jews in the survey apostatized fully 40% of the middle ground Protestants dropped their denominational affiliation. But we see that college students often compromise their Christian background and join the evolution crowd. Many compromise their faith, they lose their faith, or even reject their faith. And on the other hand, there are objective scientists, many of whom were formerly evolutionists, have come to analyze the claims of evolutionary theory and now they present strong arguments against the major pillars of that theory. They see intelligence within the creation that cannot be explained by mindless evolution. I encourage you to go to Tomorrow's World website and search the keyword evolution. Mr. John O'Gwin presented an excellent telecast, it was number 245, was Darwin wrong? You can see that on our website. If you do such a search on our website, you'll come up with some of the following articles or telecasts. Evolution, Fact or Fiction by John H. O'Gwin. Darwin's Bicentennial and the Death of Darwinism by William Bomer. Evolution, A Religion by Jeffrey Fall. Ten Really Dumb Ideas, uh, number eight by Davy Crockett. Opium of the People by Jeffrey Fall. Religion Under Fire by Douglas S. Winnell. Are Atheists Really Fools by Roderick C. Meredith. So you can check out our website and receive a lot more information on evolution. True science differentiates between macroevolution and microevolution. Microevolution is demonstrated in mutations and variations within a species. In fact, the World Wall Street Journal came out with this article here, February 23rd, 2010. Obesity, big feet, blame Darwin. Evolution helped humans have children and survive, but it also led to modern-day maladies, scientists say. So again, if you have big feet, it may show a little transition of microevolution just uh, changes within a species. But macroevolution, the transformation of one kind 
into another kind has never been proved, only theorized. There are two major arguments, or many other major arguments, but just to mention a couple against the theory of evolution. One, even if macroevolution were true, which it's not, there is not enough time in the history of the universe for evolution to take place from non-life to intelligent human life. The evidence, another major argument against evolution, the evidence of complexity and intelligence in the creation argues against the probabilities of life form development from randomness, which is what they say the universe is or has been, and natural selection. Now there's another view of the creation. It's called theistic evolution or evolutionary creationism or cre Christian Darwinism. This doctrine believes that God created the universe and life, but that evolution took over and was the natural process by which God created human life. Theistic evolution denies the literal revelation of God in Genesis 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. The Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, and many mainline Protestant churches accept forms of theistic evolution. They treat the Genesis account as allegorical and not literal. The Episcopal Church at its 2006 General Convention made a resolution that the theory of evolution provides a fruitful and unifying scientific explanation for the emergence of life on earth, that many theological interpretations of origins can readily embrace an evolutionary outlook and that an acceptable acceptance of evolution is entirely compatible with an authentic and living Christian faith. No, it does not. It denies the Bible. It denies God's revelation. Presbyterian Church USA, official position paper. The dialogue between theology and science. The difficulty of reconciling the scriptural accounts of creation with the evidence of natural science. It is not. That's a wrong statement. Uh, true science and the Bible are compatible and in harmony. Uh, this states the opposite. That the reconciling is nicely illustrated by the fact that it was not until 13 years ago, in 1969, that the General Assembly of our own church, the Presbyterian Church of the United States, officially concluded, quote, that the true relation between the evolutionary theory and the Bible is that of non-contradiction and that the position stated by the General Assemblies of 1886, 1888, 1889, and 1924, which had interpreted Scripture as being opposed to the theory of evolution, was in error and no longer represents the mind of the Church. So amazing, here's the Presbyterian Church that had realized for a long time that the Bible did contradict evolution, now changes and is embracing it. How wrong can those statements be? Does the Bible reject the theory of evolution? And the Bible does reject not only the theory of evolution, but theistic evolution as well. Just read the first two chapters of the Bible. We in God's church rejoice in the reality of the creation and the creator who created the universe. He maintains the universe and life 
says in Hebrews 1, by the word of his power. And further, God is the greatest intelligence in the universe. If evolution teaches that the normal human mind is the greatest intelligence, then evolution denies the reality of true intelligence. You need to also know one other perspective in the marketing and presentation of evolution. I often read or see statements by evolutionists labeling natural law and scientific processes as elements and elements such as DNA and RNA as evolution. So they take something that's scientific, put a label of evolution on it as if that belongs to evolution, which it does not. True science is true science, not evolution. In 2003, I presented a Tomorrow's World telecast called The Spiritual Dimension. That's on our website, and you can see that as well. Evolution denies a whole dimension of reality. It denies the spirit realm. John 4.24, it says, God is spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. In the sermon today, I'd like to discuss questions evolution cannot answer. That's the title of the sermon, Questions Evolution Cannot Answer. I have quite a few of those questions, so this will probably be uh, number one in a series of sermons, depending how much territory we cover this afternoon. With our biblical background, most of us can easily see the fallacies and limitations of evolution because evolution is based on materialism. Everything in the universe by that approach must be explained in terms of the physical. In other words, there is no spiritual dimension. In his book, Mystery of the Ages, which I hope... Uh, I hope many of you have. Uh, by the way, you can uh, get the uh, Mr. Herbert Armstrong's book, uh, Mystery of the Ages, on Amazon.com, anywhere from $22 to one cent. Uh, one cent, uh, you can buy the book, but you pay $3.99 for shipping. So, uh, but you can get uh, Mystery of the Ages available on uh, Amazon.com. Mr. Armstrong writes in the preface, quote, Your life is engulfed in mysteries. On reflection... Your very existence is a mystery. Did you simply happen by unintelligent, resident, earthly forces without meaning or purpose? Or were you intelligently designed and created by an all-powerful God of supreme mind for a purpose that also has been hidden in mystery? In fact, the persistent tradition throughout human history about the Creator God has been such a mystery that higher education in the Western world has sought to erase the mystery by giving it virtually unanimous acceptance to the theory of evolution. End of quote. Question number one that evolution cannot answer is what is the meaning of life? Victor Frankl was a renowned psychiatrist, and he proposes that the meaning of life is man's search for meaning, and that is it's the primary motivation for his life. What is the reason for your living? What is the reason for your life? Over ancient history, philosophers have come up with many different uh, frameworks for 
the purpose of life. The ancient Greeks had a wide range of answers. In the 4th century B.C., there were three major schools and of uh, thought in Greece. They were Epicureanism, Stoicism, and Skepticism. Epicurus taught that the highest goal and purpose of life was to attain freedom from pain and to enjoy in moderation the pleasures of body and mind. There was the Stoic philosophy. Zeno was the founder of that philosophy. They were austere in their lifestyle. The Stoic idea was a life of restraint. You don't show emotion. You're unmoved by joy or sorrow. You're indifferent to pleasure or pain. Man achieves happiness, the philosophy teaches, by freeing himself from desire and concentrating only on things he can, can control. The third school of philosophy the Greeks had was the skepticism, or the skeptic philosopher was Pyrrho. He believed that the search for meaning and purpose of life is a vain endeavor. He taught that man cannot arrive at conclusive opinions about such questions. No one can say for certain what is truth. Mankind, therefore, must withhold judgment and take no part in such controversies if he wants happiness and mental peace. Well, that's a sampling of the philosophy of the meaningless or the purpose and the meaning of life. Let's turn to Acts, the 17th chapter. The Apostle Paul was quite familiar with those ancient schools of thought. Paul visited Athens about A.D. 50, and in Acts, the 17th chapter, he met people who had various Greek philosophies. Acts 17, and starting with verse 18. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, we mentioned the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophy, they encountered him and said, some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. Here is a reality, a historic fact, that atheists, agnostics, of course, reject. They took him and brought him to the area of Apagus, saying, <clears throat> May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears, therefore we want to know what these things mean. Verse 28, the Apostle Paul concludes his discourse by talking about the Creator God, because they had worshipped this unknown God, for in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. So Paul was emphasizing that we are intimately tied to the Creator God. Paul was saying that human life can have no real meaning or purpose apart from God. Man was created to have a special relationship with his Creator, and that's the very foundation of a meaningful life. <clears throat> Excuse me while well, I have a little of Dr. Meredith's tea here. <clears throat> that was good. <clears throat> Sir John Eccles was perhaps the foremost authority on the mind and brain. 
He was interviewed for a World Tomorrow telecast back in the 1980s. And he was asked about the meaning of life. And here's what this Nobel Prize winner said. Quote, I would say that the meaning, to get meaning out of it, I eventually have to say this, that the meaning has to come back to the Creator. One has to believe that there's more behind all this from our very existence as creating selves to what we do and how we live in what I think, what I like to think in an altruistic society, caring and loving one another, living for one another, building a new world of love and inspiration and dedication and sacrifice. Ah, building such a world. The meaning of all this, I think, is in the mind of the Creator. You see, when, if as soon as you get away from materialism, ah, you have wonderful opportunities. You've left being tied down in materialism, stuck in materialism. So just as we heard in the sermonette about freedom, Jesus said in John 8.32, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. But there are others who do not want to assign meaning to life. Now, evolutionists can give meaning in the sense that, yes, there's the meaning of survival, but they can't come up with the transcendent, transcendent truth of the meaning of life. Dr. Meredith quoted this, and we've quoted on the telecast from Aldous Huxley, Ends and Means, page 270. Dr. Meredith wrote in his article on uh, spirit warfare, July, August 2009, why do people try so hard to do away with the concept of a real God, a God with authority, who governs the world and intervenes in human affairs? When I was growing up, one of the well-known philosophers and intellectuals made the following admission, and this is from Aldous Huxley, quote, For myself, as no doubt for most of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation. The liberation we desired was simultaneously liberation from a certain political and economic system, and liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. There was one admirably simple method of confusing these people and at the same time justifying ourselves in our political and erotic revolt. We could deny that the world had any meaning whatsoever. End of quote. What an incredible admission that he purposely embraced the concept of meaningless so they could have their sexual freedom. And of course, it's not really freedom. It's bondage to sin. And all have sinned, and uh, of course, the wages of sin is death. Romans 6 and verse 23. One other astronomer, astrophysicist, Carl Sagan, also embrace that idea of meaningless. Meaninglessness. Uh, this is the Privileged Planet by Guillermo Gonzalez and J.W. Richards. It has an amazing photo in here that was taken from space. 
and it shows planet Earth from way out in space in the Milky Way. In fact, the plate here has an arrow pointing to a little tiny dot in the Milky Way. This is plate two, Earth as a pale uh, blue dot. Voyager 1 took this image in 1990 while looking back at the solar system from a distance of some 4 billion miles. Earth is immersed in one of the rays of sunlight scattered in the camera's optics, resulting from the small angle between Earth and Sun. And so when you see this tiny pale blue dot in the Milky Way, it's so insignificant that we can conclude that we are meaningless in this vast universe. And that's what he concludes. He wrote in The Earth as a Pale Blue Dot, that is Carl Sagan, wrote A Vision of Human Future in Space, 1994, quote, Our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe, are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity and all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. End of quote. What a pathetic philosophy. How pathetic can you get? No hint? You know, it's, it's the uh, famous state you may have heard. It's an old proverb attributed to the Englishman John Haywood in 1546. There is none so blind who will not see. God says there is no excuse. You can see. And some individuals choose not to see. It's no hint. God sent his son into the world to demonstrate that he will save us from ourselves. God gives us, even today, overwhelming proof and evidence through the creation and through his word, the Bible. Let's turn to Romans 1.20 again. You know that uh, by heart, but it's certainly true when we think about the meaning of life, the meaning of the universe, and yet here individuals who admit that they embrace a philosophy of meaninglessness. And God says something different here in Romans 1, verse 20. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Again, what is the meaning of life? Turn back to uh, Psalm 8. Of course, Dr. Meredith covered part of this last week. Psalm 8, when my wife and I were discussing the question, she said, well, life is more than animal energy. There is significance to our life, she said. And the ancient King David also pondered the question. Psalm 8 and uh, verse 3, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, well, how many people do consider the heavens? Astronomers do, and many of you have gotten on the website and seen the fantastic photos from the Hubble Telescope on the NASA website of all the incredible galaxies, the Sombrero 
galaxy, the Eagle Nebula, uh, just on and on, just fabulous galaxies that are out there. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've ordained, in comparison, not spoken here, but is what David is thinking, what is man that you're mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? For you've made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. Just as Carl Sagan was struck by the seemingly insignificance of the tiny pale blue dot in the universe, David was struck by his comparison to the galaxies and to the heavens. But he asked the question, and he got the answer right. I mentioned Sir John Eccles before. He mentioned that science has its limitations, and he commented on the inability of science to answer that question, what is man, that you're mindful of him. Quote, science also cannot explain the existence of each of us as a unique self, nor can it answer such fundamental questions as, who am I? Why am I here? How did I come to be at a certain place in time? What happens after death? These are all mysteries that are beyond science, end of quote. Or we can say they're all mysteries that are beyond evolution. That's from U.S. News and World Report, December 10th, 1984, page 80. Years ago, we had a Ph.D. who got his uh, doctorate in brain science, Dr. Robert L. Kuhn, who assisted Mr. Herbert Armstrong when Mr. Armstrong was writing about the spirit in man. Robert Kuhn has written a book, Closer to Truth. It's actually a compilation of his interviews with uh, various experts in various fields of science, in uh, cosmology, in psychiatry, and I just want to read one section from here, page 324. Uh, he has a chapter entitled, What are the Grand Questions of Science? And he concludes, after this interview with various individuals, he concludes with these comments on page 324. Quote, The grand questions of science are compelling and overarching, awesome and exhausting. They provoke our curiosity and creativity, intellectual rigor, speculation, and even fantasy. They embrace subatomic structure, a multi-universal inflation, the enormous diversity of biology, the prodigious capabilities of the human brain, the most complex organization of matter known, and the marvel of the human mind, creator of art and science and seeker of purpose and destiny. The position of our species in the universe is oddly extreme. On the one hand, humankind seems completely meaningless, an insignificant accident on an inconsequential galactic outpost among billions of galaxies. On the other, the universe is, to some thinkers, in some sense, human-centered, something the ancients thought obvious and we moderns think ancient. It's thrilling to skim the bits and pieces of heroic thinking. It puts one's own life into perspective. As for my own favorite questions, I'll pick two. First, what is the extent of reality? That's another question we'll pose in uh, 
part two of the sermon series. Are there multiple universes? Second, can everything in the mind be explained by something in the brain? Whether the universe is grand design or random accident, our investigation of it amounts to an imperative from consciousness to cosmology. Our instinct is to get closer to truth. Well, he's being very clever in tying that into the title of his uh, television program and uh, his book. Those are some of the grand questions of science, and we know many of the answers to those questions. Mr. Herbert Armstrong wrote in his autobiography, only in the Bible can he, that is human beings, learn the real purpose being worked out here below. Only through this revelation from God can he know the real meaning of life, what exactly man is, or the way to such desired blessings as peace, happiness, abundant living, the spiritual values. The biblical revelation provides man with a true concept through which to view and explain what he can observe. That's from chapter 55 of Mr. Herbert W. Armstrong's autobiography. So let me ask you, what is the meaning of your life? Who are you? And what is the value of your life? What is the significance of your life? Let's turn to 1 Chronicles 29. 1 Chronicles 29. Here, King David, responding to all of the offerings that had been accumulated for the building of the temple, again saw himself in relationship to God. And it was a humble explanation. First Chronicles 29 and verse 14. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer so willingly as this? For all things come from you, and of your own we have given you. So again, who are you? We've had uh, sermons and articles on who you are, your identity. I've uh, challenged you in these sermons in the past to identify yourself with biblical descriptors. One of the challenges I gave at a feast one time was to, from the Bible, use explanations or descriptors from the Bible A to Z that would describe a Christian. And uh, here's one from... Uh, a young man, I won't mention his name. In fact, when I gave that, I think it was at Myrtle Beach one year, I had about 20 of these were given to me after the sermon. And I thought, well, did you listen to the sermon? You were writing down all these, uh, trying to fulfill this challenge. Well, the, I got beautiful uh, examples. This one, A, anointed by truth. B, blessed through baptism. C, conquered by love. D, directed by Christ. E, enduring to the end. F, faithful. And, of course, Z, zealous. So you might do that yourself. Of course, ambassadors, A for ambassadors, B for building, C for Christian, D for disciples. Uh, go on and on and on, A to Z, and see who you are, what you are, and begin to understand the real meaning of life. Mr. Herbert Armstrong asked the question, what is the real value of life? What determines your true human value? And the answer is a little surprising because it's a little, it's in the spiritual realm, let's put it this way. He writes this, 
What is the real truth concerning human worth? What is the real value of a human life? It is grossly overestimated in its own reality and astoundingly undervalued in its supreme potential. The truth is indeed staggering. It is this human spirit in man that makes it possible for man to be united with God so that man may be gotten of God by God's spirit uniting with the human spirit thus impregnating the human person as a child of the supreme creator God. The real value of a human life then lies solely within the human spirit combined with the human brain. It should be stated at once that this human spirit is not perceived by the most highly educated psychologist, yet it is the very essence of the human mind. That's pages 107 to 108 in Mystery of the Ages. So question number one is that evolution cannot answer, what is the meaning of life? Evolution can only ascribe physical, material meaning to life. It cannot understand the true, that the true meaning is a relationship with God. True living, true life, far transcends the physical. Its meaning is inherently immersed in our relationship with God and with each other. Question number two is the purpose of life. We just talked about the meaning of life. And the meaning of life has to do with the relationship with God, even as Sir John Eccles was positing. Question number two, evolution cannot explain the purpose of life. Why are we alive? Why were we born? What is our ultimate destiny? Dr. Meredith, in his introduction to the booklet, Your Ultimate Destiny, writes, Quote, most people never stop to consider their real purpose in life. In fact, most assume there is no real purpose. How about you? Is there any transcendent reason for you to be alive? Can you have a remarkable, remarkably interesting and fulfilling destiny ahead of you, regardless of your present situation? Can you be 100% sure of a future rendezvous with happiness, joy, and peace? Or... Are you living a fleeting, disappointing existence on planet Earth with no more purpose for your life than the birds, the bees, or for that matter, the worms that crawl in the dirt? Very colorful expression. As a human being, you obviously have much higher intelligence than those creatures. You can visualize the future. You have hopes and dreams and creative imagination far beyond other form of physical life on this Earth. Yet do all these gifts, potentials, and dreams rot when you die and dust returns to dust? Well, evolution has an answer, but it's a very limited materialistic answer for the purpose of life. One simple description for human drives is, and I've read this in books uh, at graduate school level years ago, what are three basic human drives? Self-preservation, self-perpetuation or propagation, and self-determination. Those are the standard motivations for, for human beings. But self-determination? Are we getting into the matter of free will, as we heard in the sermonette, of free moral agency? Does evolution produce free moral agency? God gave us free moral agency. Let's turn there to Deuteronomy 30 and verse 19. Deuteronomy 30 and verse 19. 
so fundamental that every human being on earth ought to learn this scripture and face up to the challenge. Deuteronomy 30 and verse 19, God says, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. God has given us that free moral agency. Animals don't have that free moral agency. Human beings with a mind, with the spirit of God or the spirit of man, still have that choice. He continues in verse 20, that you may love the eternal your God, that you may obey his voice, that you may cling to him, for he is your life and the length of your days, and that you may dwell in the land which the eternal swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give them. Three basic purposes of life traditionally are self-preservation, self-propagation, and self-determination. But God goes beyond the animal life to give us free moral agency. I'll refer you to several of our sermons. Uh, sermon number 109, self-will or God's will. Uh, number 243, willing to do God's will. And number 356, uh, what is your purpose in life? Well, we discuss the purpose of life. We need to understand the Copernican principle. It's after Copernicus in the 16th century. Again, uh, the privileged planet has a major discussion on it. I'll just quote from it, page 248. Sometime in the 20th century, however, Einstein's cosmological principle came to be identified with a subtly different idea, the Copernican principle, also known as the principle of mediocrity or the principle of indifference. In its modest form, the Copernican principle states that we should assume that there's nothing special, which we, we've already discussed briefly, there's nothing special or exceptional about the time or place of Earth in the cosmos. It has closely related, has a closely related but more expansive philosophical or metaphysical physical expression, however, which says, we're not here for a purpose and the cosmos isn't arranged with us in mind. Our metaphysical status is an insignificant, is as insignificant as our astronomical location. Metaphysically, this denial of purpose is accompanied by naturalism, the view that the impersonal material world is all there is, and that it exists for no purpose. Some of you older people may remember uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He was a Nobel Prize winning officer, uh, author. And he wrote this about our society back in uh, the 20th century. He said, quote, If I were called upon to identify the principal trait of the entire 20th century, I would be unable to find anything more precise than to reflect once again on how we have lost touch with our Creator. End of quote. As Solzhenitsyn said, the human race has lost touch with its creator. But God's people know that we have a relationship with our creator, and there are so many hundreds and thousands of beautiful verses that show that. But let's turn to Jeremiah 29. This is so encouraging, so inspiring to understand God's purpose for us and his love towards us. 
and his desire to have a close relationship with us. Jeremiah 29, and starting in verse 11. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Eternal, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you, says the Eternal, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations, from all the places where I have driven you, says the Eternal, and I will bring you to the place from which I cause you to be carried away captive. So God wants the best for all of us. We need to think of that purpose, that we do have a hope, that we do have meaning. And we realize that the purpose, one of the major purposes that Jesus said to remember Nicodemus in John 3, you must be born again. And the Protestant world doesn't understand it. It thinks that when you're converted, you're born again. But we're talking about a literal being born into the kingdom of God as immortalized, glorified children of God, as spirit bodies and spirit beings. Let's take a look at that purpose in Romans 8 and verse 29. Romans 8 and verse 29. The Bible interprets the Bible and it shows us how we are to be born again, as Jesus said in John 3. Romans 8 and verse 29. Again, a very powerful fundamental of the very purpose of life. Romans 8 and verse 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined. For what purpose? To be conformed to the image of his Son. Now the image implies character. It implies his nature. It implies his mind. We ought to be conformed to the very image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now how was he the firstborn among many brethren? Turn back to Romans 1 for the answer. How is one born again? How was he declared to be the Son of God? Romans 1 and verse 4. Talking about Jesus Christ declared to be the Son of God with power. How? According to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. And in Revelation 1.4, he's the firstborn from the dead. So we are born again by a resurrection from the dead. And of course, as it tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, this mortal must put on immortality. And so that happens at the resurrection. What is the purpose of life? There are many ways we can say that, answer that. Just let me give you one of my personal sentences. The purpose of life is to learn godly character in preparation for joining the family of God by a resurrection from the dead for an eternity of love and creativity. Now we can say that again in many different ways. In fact, they have a, a much longer explanation and essay on that point. From Mystery of the Ages, page 227, Mr. Herbert Armstrong writes, we have seen that there is indeed a purpose being worked out here below. Winston Churchill stated that before the United States Congress. There is a reason for the presence of humanity on earth and for the working out of the purpose 
There is a master plan. The church is an important part of that plan. Never lose sight of the setting that led up to the raising up of the church. Keep in mind who and what God is, the divine creating family now producing himself in man. And if you missed Dr. Meredith's sermon last week, uh, you need to listen to it, which answered this whole question in a beautiful way. God is building a family. It was the title of the sermon last week. So if you haven't heard that, be sure that you take the time to listen to that sometime in the future. And answer it in detail, the question, what is the purpose of life? And evolutionists are light years away from even coming close to answering that question. Uh, they will see it in the white throne judgment. The Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That reality should sober us all. As I've explained in previous sermon, the process can be an inspiring process. Ephesians 3:14, the Apostle Paul said, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. You have several sermons along that line for the purpose of life. Uh, build Christ's character, sermon number 88, God's masterpiece of creation, sermon number 129, and build Christian character, sermon 179, and the importance of character, sermon number 449. We conclude this question, I'll conclude it with a quote from Dr. Meredith in his Your Ultimate Destiny booklet. Quote, God and his firstborn son, like a loving family, are preparing other sons to join with them in ruling this world and later the entire universe. So go out under the stars some clear night. Try counting as many stars as you can see and think of the billions of stars scattered across the vast universe which you cannot see. And then meditate on this awe-inspiring purpose for your life and thank God for it. Then get down on your knees and begin to zealously do your part to make it all possible. End of quote. Question number two that evolution cannot answer is, what is the purpose of life? Question number three is, why the universe? We already saw from Carl Sagan that I'll repeat the quote from his book, Pale Blue Dot, A Vision of the Human Future in Space. Our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe, are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity and all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. Well, he died some years ago, and he'll be able to repent of his comments. You need to understand what is called the anthropic principle. Uh, Dr. Douglas Fennell explains that in his booklet, The Real God, Proofs and Promises. He writes this, quote, A growing number of scientists in the fields of physics, astronomy, and cosmology are acknowledging what is called the anthropic principle, Greek anthropos, meaning man. This principle, suggested in the 1970s by physicist Brandon Carter, states that for life to exist on Earth, all the conditions had to be pre-planned from the very beginning 
of the cosmos. As Harvard Ph.D. Patrick Glynn notes, quote, the most basic explanation for the universe is that it seems to be a process orchestrated to achieve the end or goal of creating human beings, end of quote. And that's from God, the Evidence by Glenn, 1997, pages 7 and page 32. Continuing from the Real God booklet, Glenn states further, from the scientist viewpoint, the fact that the universe looks as though it had a definite beginning might be upsetting enough. But what appears to drive cosmologists nearly to distraction is the anthropic principle that the earth and the universe was created for mankind, from page 42. Dr. Douglas Winnell comments that is an astounding observation for a scholar to make today. The, I've referred to you as the privileged planet. Um, the cover page asks here in the beginning, is Earth merely an insignificant speck in a vast and meaningless universe? On the contrary, the privileged planet, how our place in the cosmos is designed for discovery, show that this cherished assumption of materialism is dead wrong. Earth is far more significant than virtually anyone has realized. Contrary to the scientific orthodoxy, it is not an average planet around an ordinary star in an unremarkable part of the Milky Way. The authors, Gonzalez and Richards, demonstrate that our planet is exquisitely fit not only to support life, but also to give us the best view of the universe as if Earth were designed for both life and for scientific discovery. In other, as, in other words, as they, astronomers, research various planets, they determine that any of those planets were covered with clouds or gas, and you could not see out from any planet other than planet Earth, where you can go out and see the universe. Let's turn to Hebrews, the second chapter. Hebrews 2. Again, uh, Dr. Meredith quoted from this last week. You see our awesome potential and the purpose of the universe. When David said, you have put all things under man's feet. But of course we see that the Apostle Paul in Hebrews, the second chapter, says that we have not yet put all things under his feet. That is verse 8 of Hebrews 2. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might test, taste death for everyone. So God says that he's going to give us all things and put all things in subjection. Again, verse 8, For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. That is, the universe, and all things that are seen and not seen. Again, I referred to earlier how the universe is upheld. Speaking of Christ here in verse 3 of Hebrews 1, who being the brightness of God's glory and express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power. The Moffat translation says, sustains the universe. So the universe is just not out there randomly. It is sustained by God's power. 
by the word of his power. And speaking of Christ, when he had by himself purged our sin, sin sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. But why the universe? The universe is the environment for human beings to learn how to build godly character, the very divine character of God as he creates in us his perfect righteous character. And the universe is the ultimate inheritance for those human beings who will be born into the kingdom of God as immortalized, glorified children. That's the answer to the question evolutionists cannot answer. What is the purpose of the universe? Why the universe? Question number four is an easy question to answer, but still one that is debated among evolutionists and cosmologists and scientists. What is the origin of the universe? All we need to do is to go to Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The King James has heaven. The New King James uh, correctly translates it, plural, heavens and earth. The famous astrophysicist Stephen Hawking, in his lecture, The Beginning of Time, stated this, quote, the universe has not existed forever. Rather, the universe and time itself had a beginning in the Big Bang about 15 billion years ago. Yes, God created the universe. It didn't exist at one time. And time did not exist at one time. When did time come into being? Well, how do we measure time? Well, it tells us here in Genesis, the first chapter, I uh, find the correct uh, verse 14. Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. God created time. And time is associated with human beings. But God is in another dimension that dimension is not affected by time. And we will be in that dimension, which supersedes and transcends time and space. That's why, as Dr. Meredith was mentioning last week, that the distance of all the galaxies are not a barrier to God's immortalized children. It's the matter of thought, instant thought, which conquers time and space. And we look forward to that time. Question number four that evolution cannot answer is what is the origin of the universe? And of course, if we're observing the Sabbath, we understand that God is the creator of the universe because the Sabbath is a memorial of the creation as well as a sign between God and his people and foreshadowing the millennial Sabbath of a thousand years. Question number five that evolution cannot answer is what is the origin of natural law? Scientists begin with the whole system of predictable physical and natural laws. Where did those natural laws come from? 
one of our professors wrote uh, a scientist one time that question and uh, since I don't have the document with me I won't, won't quote it exactly but the answer came back that is a meaningless question because he couldn't answer it where do the natural laws come from you begin this universe with all these laws in effect in fact let me just read that from uh, our booklet on uh, uh, God, uh, God, the real God, Proof and Promises. Patrick Glynn in his book, God, the Evidence, writes that everything had to be just right from the very start. Everything from the values of fundamental forces like electromagnetism and gravity to the relative masses of the various subatomic particles to things like the number of neutrino types at time one second, which the universe has to know already at 10 to the minus 43rd second. The slightest tinkering with a single one of scores of basic values and relationships in nature would have resulted in a universe far different from the one we inhabit, say with one with no stars like our sun or no stars, period. So all these variables were in set just so that we can have a perfect universe that would support a perfect planet Earth that would support human life. I uh, would like to recommend to you these uh, DVDs. This is The Privileged Planet, which uh, also discusses those finite variables of how the universe expanded and how we have those perfect elements and uh, metrics for life today uh, then another one unlocking the mystery of life I'll comment a little more on that later and uh, the case for a creator so if all of your children have not seen those DVDs hopefully you can order them and uh, of course you would want to see them yourself as, uh, as adults uh, very fascinating very uh, informative very substantive what is the origin of natural law? I think I've quoted this before, but from Quantum Cosmology, The Nature of Space and Time, page 40, theoretical physicists Stephen Hawking and Roger Penrose wrote, quote, The only way to have scientific theory is if the laws of physics hold everywhere, including at the beginning of the universe. So to ask the question, where do natural laws come from, is not a meaningless question. It's a reality that demands an answer. Let's turn to uh, James, the second chapter, James 2. There are natural laws, and then there are spiritual laws. The existence of both demand a lawgiver. James, the second chapter, James 2 Start with verse 10. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. Now if you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so do, as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. We heard in the sermonette about the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. God has given us a law of liberty. As I quoted already, John 8, 32, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. 
James 4 and verse 12 across the page. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? Question number five that evolution cannot answer is what is the origin of natural law? Question number six is what is the origin of life? Mankind has not come close to creating life or giving credible evidence on how it could have come from non-life. The law of biogenesis attributed to Louis Pasteur uh, states that life can only come from life, not non-life. However, the evolutionists counter that and say, well, wait a minute, the law of biogenesis attributed to Louis Pasteur is often cited by creationists as evidence for the need of an intelligent creator, who they believe is their God. They describe the law of biogenesis as stating that life cannot come from non-life, it can only come from other life. <laughs> this is a misunderstanding of the law. Oh, really? The law states that life forms such as mice, maggots, and bacteria cannot appear fully formed. The law says nothing, however, about the biogenesis of very primitive life from, from increasingly complex molecules. Oh, that's wonderful. No. no, so what they're saying is that Pasteur didn't come up with the, the law that life can only come from life. Well, so Pasteur may not have formulated that, but is it a reality? Is it a truism? Is it a law? Life cannot come from non-life. Interestingly enough, the current uh, Science News, July 3rd, 2010, Life Reloaded in Search of Origins. Biologists try to build a cell. The editor-in-chief in his column says, Creating life in lab depends on power of primitive cells. After his discussion, he concludes, In a way, complex organisms like people may merely be vehicles constructed by simple molecules for their own preservation. The molecules offering a repertoire of survival tools in exchange for a comfortable habitat. So when scientists succeed in creating primitive life, it might be appropriate to remember that primitive life succeeded first in creating scientists. <laughs> anyway, I thought it was rather humorous in, in presenting that. <clears throat> but again, they deny the spiritual realm and to say that everything that must that happens thought uh, human creativity is a result of chemical reactions and reactions of molecules is in my judgment insane god says of course in psalm 14 and psalm 53 verse 1 the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So again, as I said on telecast one time, I didn't say that, God said it. So, but what is the origin of life? Again, uh, God says that he has created the life. And uh, as I mentioned here, the, um, the one uh, DVD, The Miracle of Life, uh, certainly, oh, no, Unlocking the Mystery of Life, a DVD, I'd recommend you see that because what it shows in a very uh, graphic way an animation of DNA and RNA 
Bill Bryson wrote a book who uh, was a bestseller called uh, A Short History of Nearly Everything, Destined to Become a Modern Classic of Science Writing. And uh, he describes the matter of uh, proteins and amino acids and even the, the chance of various amino, amino acids coming together by chance in a prescribed sequence to produce a per certain protein is virtually improbable, statistically. Uh, just to read one other section on page 289 where he's talking about proteins, DNA. A protein to be of use must not only assemble amino acids in the right sequence, but then must engage in a kind of chemical origami and fold itself into a very specific shape. You'll see that in the DVD, Unlocking the Mystery of Life. Even, even having achieved this structural complexity, a protein is no good to you if it can't reproduce itself, and proteins can't. For this you need DNA. DNA is a whiz at replicating. It can make a copy of itself in seconds, but can do virtually nothing else. So we have a paradoxical situation. Proteins can't exist without DNA, and DNA has no purpose without proteins. Are we to assume, then, that they arose simultaneously with the purpose of supporting each other? If so, wow. That's all he can say. If so, wow. That's all he can say. He can't come up with an explanation. Neither can evolutionists come up with an explanation. He goes on to say, as the physicist Paul Davies puts it, quote, if everything needs everything else, how did the community of molecules ever arise in the first place? Everything is interdependent. So how could it all evolve simultaneously? Bryson goes on to say, it is rather as if all the ingredients in your kitchen somehow got together and baked themselves into a cake, but a cake that could moreover divide when necessary to produce more cakes. It is little wonder that what we call, that we call it the miracle of life, it is also little wonder that we have barely begun to understand it. It's absolutely incredible. Admission after admission that it's impossible, but it happened by evolution. You have to have a blind faith to believe in something that is unreal and untrue. We know the origins of life. We know that life, God is a life giver. In Genesis 2 7, we already read that God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being, New King James, living soul, uh, King James Version. And Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then when he was there for Lazarus and raised Lazarus from the dead, Jesus said in John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And one of my favorite, of many favorites, Colossians 3, 4, when Christ, who is your life, shall appear, then you also will appear with him 
in glory. Let's take a look at one uh, scripture here, 1 Corinthians 2.11. We've covered this before, but it certainly helps us to understand the matter of human life because it shows us that human beings have a spiritual dimension, not an immortal soul, but a spiritual dimension. And evolutionists can't answer the question of the origin of life because they, again, deny the spiritual dimension. 1 Corinthians, the second chapter, in verse 11. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? There is a human spirit. And that human spirit combined with the human brain produces mind power, which animals do not have. Animals don't know the things of a man, except the spirit of the man which is in him. Even so, no one knows the things of God except the spirit of God. Human beings were made incomplete. They were made to need the spirit of God to make him complete. Evolution cannot answer the question, what is the origin of life? The first two chapters of the Bible answer that question. And further, evolution is ignorant of the greatest reality, the spirit world. It's ignorant of the abundant spiritual life that God gave us, that is, each human being through Christ, as he said in John 10.10, 10, I am come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. So today we've briefly discussed six questions evolution cannot answer. We'll discuss several more questions in the next sermon on, in this series. Question number one was, what is the meaning of life? Question number two was, what is the purpose of life? Why are we alive? Why were we born? Question number three is, why the universe? Number four is, what is the origin of the universe? Number five, what is the origin of natural law? Question number six, what is the origin of life? We saw in Romans, the first chapter, in verse 20, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power in Godhead, so that they are without excuse. God is love, and we know that he's given us evidence of his creation, and of his powerful, loving existence. You know the seven traditional proofs of God. Creation demands a creator. Law demands a, de a lawgiver. Life demands a life giver. Design demands a designer. And then, of course, God sustains the universe by the word of his power and uh, fulfilled prophecy and answered prayer. All of us have experienced those wonderful proofs of God. And, of course, the telecast this weekend, Teach Me to Pray, I hope will touch the hearts and minds of many who may be on the edge, who are seeking God and can find Him through the telecast and to get down on their knees and begin to cry out to God so that He can draw near to them as they draw close to Him. So thank God that we know our purpose and meaning of life. He's given us revelation. The world blinds itself, and Satan has blinded and deceived the whole world. Revelation 12.9 but God has given us understanding through revelation, the revelation of His Word through the Holy Spirit to our minds. There's a proverb that says, Knowledge is easy to him who understands. That's Proverbs 14.6. So thank God that we understand 
Let's go forward to fulfill our very purpose and our very meaning in life.